Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Back to Luke chapter 1. I just love the way Luke begins his gospel. He writes this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke addresses this gospel to Theophilus. The name literally means loved by God, loved of God or friend of God. People often debate, is this most excellent Theophilus a, a real person or was he sort of symbolic of all the, the lover, those loved of God to whom Luke was writing down through the ages? What Luke is doing here in his gospel is he's taking faithful eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry and he's recording them faithfully just with, with that personality that God gave him, very very precise and careful and orderly. And he does that here in, in the gospel of Luke, relying probably very heavily on eyew- other eyewitness accounts. But then by the time he comes to volume two of his writings, which is the gospel, or not the gospel, the the Acts of the Apostles, right? Luke wrote that book as well. That's sort of part two the, to the Gospel of Luke is the book of Acts. And near the tail end of Acts, Luke actually begins to contribute his own eyewitness accounts as he travels alongside the Apostle Paul to the very end. And I love how Luke says here in his gospel that he's writing these things in an orderly way in order that this friend of God, this one who is loved of God, might have certainty of the things that he has been taught about the Lord. You know, the events that Luke is recording in in this gospel are not events that took place in some back room somewhere. They were performed out in public And there were eyewitnesses, many, many eyewitnesses. These things took place in villages and highways and byways all throughout Israel. And all of the eyewitnesses' accounts attested to the same wonder and glory and majesty of Jesus' life and ministry. And Luke's task was only to sort of put them in order and to give an orderly account of these things. I thought of 2 Peter 1.16 where the Apostle Peter said it this way. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Of the four gospel writers, Luke alone records this story that we're, we're looking at today of the ten lepers being healed. In fact, Dr. Luke, of all the gospel writers, is sort of known for highlighting Jesus' compassion for the outcasts of society. I'm talking about 
Gentiles and Samaritans and um, even women and, and the poor. Luke, in particular, focuses in on on Jesus' compassion for those groups in particular. So here in the Gospel of Luke, we get this story of the ten lepers, one of which was a Samaritan. The hero of the story, other than Jesus, was the Samaritan. And Luke also record, is the only one who records the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, as I said, Luke alone records this story here of a, of a mass healing of a leper colony. And this story is remarkable for a number of reasons, but the thing you notice right away, I think, is the solitary, grateful Samaritan who of, of all the ten is the only one to return and give thanks to Jesus. I have no doubt that all ten lepers were thankful. Would you be thankful if you were healed of leprosy? I have no doubt that all ten lepers were thankful, but only one was Christ-centered in his thanksgiving. And his testimony comes down to us today in 2020, challenging us this Thanksgiving season in, in a year that has been perhaps one of the most challenging and bizarre years of our lives. A year where perhaps Thanksgiving isn't naturally on our tongues. We are challenged by this story to be Christ-centered in our thanksgiving too. So let, let me show you exactly what I mean here from this narrative. Beginning in verse 11 here, Luke records, he says, on the way to Jerusalem, he, meaning Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. This verse reminds us that this story is one stop in a grander story that's going on. And Luke mentions here in passing that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. So Galilee is up in the northern regions of, of Israel. Samaria is sort of in between Galilee and Jerusalem. So Jesus is somewhere in between Galilee and Samaria, but yet we know he's on his way to Jerusalem. This helps us to, to locate where we are at in the grander story of Jesus' life. We are near the end of his life as Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem for the last time, willingly going up to, Jer to Jerusalem to lay down his life for sinners. And though Jesus has the cross looming before him, he does not turn a deaf ear to a cry for mercy. Thabiti Anyabile, I have a hard time saying his name, he put it this way. He said, before him is the most important task in the universe, the cross. He has fixed his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, but on the way, some nameless lepers on an isolated hill call out to him, and the Savior of the universe takes time to show mercy. So I think the context heightens our sense of Jesus' mercy and compassion here. And we will see again in just a few moments that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve even on the way to 
giving up his life as a ransom for many. Look at the next two verses here, verses 12 and 13. It says, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a, de- at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You know, in our own day, leprosy refers to a very specific bacterial infection that's also known by a different name, the name of of Hansen's disease. I think it was renamed that because of the stigma associated with the name leprosy. But uh, Hansen's disease was, was named that because of a man by the name of Gerhard Hansen, who back in 1873 first described this bacterium that causes leprosy. Leprosy was long thought to be a skin disease because the early visible symptoms affect the skin. But in, in reality, the bacterium is beneath the surface, attacking the nerves, kind of hardening the nerves and, and causing a loss of sensation. The result is that those with leprosy often end up losing parts of their body, not because the bacterium causes that part of your body to die and fall off, but, but simply because the bacterium deadens your nerves and then you don't realize that you're hurting yourself. Right? They might pick up a, something boiling hot and not realize it, that it's damaging them. Or, uh, you know, there's even stories in third world countries of people with leprosy having parts of their bodies eaten by, by rats or animals and not realizing it because of the, the deadness in their, in their limbs as a result of this bacteria. The book of Leviticus in the Old Testament devotes two full chapters to leprosy. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. I encourage you to read those sometime, maybe this week. But if you compare what Leviticus describes in these two chapters to what I've just been describing to you, Hansen's disease, you're going to quickly discover that what the Bible's describing Uh, could encompass really a whole wide variety of diseases that manifest themselves on the skin. And probably including Hansen's disease. Now these chapters, not only do they they speak of, of different conditions that you might get that manifest themselves on your skin, but it's also gonna describe various uh, things that are called leprosy that, that could manifest it self on the wall of your house or on a piece of your clothing, right? So it's, it's obvious that when the Bible speaks of leprosy, especially in the Old Testament, it could be referring even to things like rot or fungus or mildew. So we don't have a lot of, of modern scientific precision in knowing exactly what condition these 10 lepers had, but we know that it wasn't pretty. Leviticus chapter 13 is all about how the priests are to diagnose various types of leprosy, rendering someone or something ritually unclean. The leprosy, if you were evaluated by the priest, you had some kind of a a lesion on your arm or on your body somewhere, you would go to the priest, the priest would take a look at it, and he would would render a verdict, clean or, or unclean. 
And then Leviticus 14 describes how someone or something can be declared clean again if in the providence of God the condition grows better and and eventually goes away. Now, I have three observations here about what the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus has to say about leprosy that I think will give us a little bit of insight into our story here in the Gospel of Luke. First, I I think the primary concern in in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament is the holiness of God. The, The primary concern here is one of ritual uncleanness before God. These two chapters in the book of Leviticus are part of a larger section in the law designed to communicate that God is holy and cannot be approached in just any old way. And one of the ways that God taught this was by having the priests declare people, people and things to be unclean, right? Talking about people and things that were sick or dying or dead or deformed or contaminated in some way. In fact, even if you yourself weren't any of those things, if you came in contact with someone who was sick or, or dying or dead or deformed or contaminated, you, you could become ritually unclean, at least for a period of time. It can, can, can seem kind of strange to us, I think, in our modern day and age, but we need to keep in mind that God was using this category of ritual uncleanness to teach the, the children of Israel about his holiness. Leprosy and some of these other things you'll read in the book of Leviticus that, that renders someone unclean. I mean, think about it. Your, your skin was basically rotting on your bones. And if you had Hansen's disease, parts of your body were literally falling off. It was like you were the living dead. Right? And God was communicating by having these people declared unclean that even, even though these things may or may not have been a direct result of someone's sinfulness. Right? God was communicating here that, that uncleanness, death, deformity, uh, the things that are even the, the result of, the, of living in a sin-cursed world cannot come into his presence because he is holy. A- as I said, some of these things that would make you, could make you ritually unclean before the Lord were not necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but they were really just an unfortunate consequence of living in a sinful and fallen world. And, and it's true that leprosy was, was often seen as a curse from God. In fact, God did at times use leprosy as a curse in the Old Testament for someone's rebellion or, or disobedience. But it's important to note that the uncleanness of leprosy was not necessarily a result of sin. God was having them declare it ritually unclean, I think for the broader reason of just teaching them about his holiness. Secondly, we notice in the book of Leviticus that a secondary concern was the holiness and safety of the community. You know, there were a lot of ways to become ritually unclean. 
that didn't result in being permanently separated from the community, but leprosy was one of those ones that God in his wisdom said that if someone had one of these contagious diseases, they were actually to be separated from the community. And I think that was to teach something about the need for holiness in the community. That we, you know, we as sinful fallen creatures, all we can communicate to one another is, is contamination and uncleanness. Right? As a sinner, I communicate sinfulness and contamination to others. And, and when there is a, a, some sort of sin or, or uncleanness in the community, God taught the people that they must separate it from, from the community in order to keep it pure, to keep it holy. But in Leviticus 13, we can read here about w- what the terrifying sentence was on those who were declared unclean with leprosy. Leviticus chapter 13 Verses 45 and 46. This is what the, the priest was to say, say to the person who is unclean. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Can't we identify with that a little bit more here in 2020? That maybe we could have at this time last year? I mean, I, I see here, uh, you know, a social distancing that was required and, and isolation, the social isolation of the, the one with leprosy. And notice even they were to cover their upper lip almost like a face mask, you know, and, and declare unclean, unclean. This was a tragedy because it meant that, that this person who w- was to be shunned as an unclean outcast, I mean, can you imagine? They couldn't be around their family and friends anymore. They couldn't resume their normal business. They were forced literally to the periphery of society. And the only people that they could congregate together with were other lepers. So lepers would often form colonies where they would at least be together with one another. And this shunning certainly contributed, I think, to the sense that someone who had, been, had leprosy had been cursed by God. But that's one of the things I love about the Gospels that we see the heart of Christ for outcasts like lepers revealing that those in in this state were not cursed by God, but were actually perhaps best poised to be rescued by God. And so these laws were intended to protect the community from the potential spread of of various leprous diseases. And, And the spiritual lesson, I think, shouldn't be lost on us, that uncleanness spreads and must be separated from the community of God's people. Thirdly, if you read in Leviticus 13 and 14, you'll you'll notice, I think one thing that'll stand out to you is just the powerlessness of the priests and of the law to heal. It's one of the things that just really stood out to me as I was meditating on those chapters of, of the Old Testament law, just how powerless the priests were to do anything about the leprosy. 
I mean, the priestly law essentially made the priests like umpires calling strikes and balls, clean and unclean. They were like public health officials determining who had to be isolated and who could rejoin the community. And so that brings us back now to our story with Jesus in Luke 17, verses 12 through 13. Here Jesus is in this unnamed village on his way to his appointment with the cross. And here he's approached by this small colony of of 10 outcast lepers who lifted up their voices to communicate with him in, in that prescribed socially distant way that the law says. And they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Apparently, even these isolated lepers had heard of Jesus, the gentle healer. They no doubt wanted him to do for them what they had heard and and maybe even perhaps seen him do for others. Had they heard of the leper that that Jesus had healed back in Luke chapter 5? In that incident, a leprous man comes alone to Jesus, falls down before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. To which Jesus responds by stretching out his own hand and actually touching this socially isolated leper and saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy healed that man. I'm I'm sorry, left that man. It was incredible. That story is incredible just to think of how that leper had perhaps not been touched by uh, any other clean person in perhaps years, and yet here this master, this, this healer, Jesus, reached out and touched his hand. And in a normal ca- course of events, Jesus touching a leprous person would have rendered him unclean. Ritually unclean, unholy before God. But when Jesus touched the leper, instead of the leper contaminating Jesus, Jesus made the leprous man clean. Perhaps these 10 lepers had heard that story. Maybe they knew of this leper who had been cleansed in that way. And perhaps they wanted Jesus to do the same thing for them as they cried out for mercy. But that's not what Jesus does here for some reason. Look at verse 14. It says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. I think the lepers had to have been disappointed at this. He was sending them away from him, the, the, the healer, the one doing all these miraculous things, back to the priest. These people had already been to the priests. They had already stood before the law of Moses and been declared unclean. What do you mean, Jesus, in sending us back to the priests? I know what the law is going to say. I know what I'm going to hear. But perhaps with just mustard seed size faith, perhaps they said, if you say so, we'll go. Look at the second half of verse 14. It says, and as they went, they were cleansed. What must that moment have been like? Kent Hughes put it this way. He said it was a mass healing. 
There were no mirrors to reflect the dramatic change, but they saw it in each other instantly. From cadaverous faces reemerged ears, noses, eyebrows, lashes, hairlines. Feet, toeless, ulcerated stubs were suddenly whole, bursting, shrunken sandals. Knobby appendages grew fingers, barnacled skin became soft and supple. It was like ten new births. The dust of a wild celebration quickly began in the bright sunlight. We can only imagine with it what it must have been like. Can you imagine having been an outcast, having been isolated, having been sick for so many years, to, to then suddenly in a moment be, be transformed and to be whole and to be well and to be pure and clean? I think the discomfort of their condition must have alerted them immediately to their healing. And it was, as Kent Hughes says, it was a mass healing. I can't think of any other situation in the Gospels where, <laughs> where 10 people were healed all at the same time. In a moment, even long distance. Look at verse 15, how the story ends here. It says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's ponder first here from these verses what these verses reveal to us about our Savior. Just got four observations here. First, I really notice the merciful heart of the Savior. You ever notice that in the Gospels, everyone who cries out to Jesus for mercy receives mercy? I'll say that again. In the Gospels, everyone who cries out to Jesus for mercy receives mercy. Everyone. There's not one example of someone begging Jesus for mercy and he doesn't show it. I can imagine that the, the holiness of God's law that required these lepers to be separated from the community must have seemed so harsh to these lepers. Yet we see God's heart in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1, 16 through 17 says, For his, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As we've been studying in the book of Romans, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And yet, in Romans 3.20, we're reminded that for by works of the law, no human being will be, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right? The law was necessary, and it, it is actually very holy. The law is very righteous. The law is very good. But it doesn't fully reveal the depths of God's heart of mercy for us. We see that alone in the person of Jesus Christ as he 
walked through the streets and people cried out to him for mercy. He showed people compassion and mercy. And we see it here in this story, I think in a brilliant fashion. But God has always revealed himself in this way. The often repeated in the Old Testament description of who God is, repeated so much in the Old Testament that it really becomes like a creed. Psalm 103 verse 8 is one example where it appears that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, there are some who will notice this same thing about Jesus and notice that he always gives mercy and they will come to the conclusion that it is always God's will to heal somebody. Don't listen to that. That's false teaching. That's not what I'm saying this morning. If it was always God's will to heal someone, then who would ever die? <laughs> right? And yet, here in the Gospels, the fact that as Jesus walked the streets and, he, and, and we only have instances of him showing mercy, I think it's designed to show us the overflowing nature of Christ's heart, which is merciful. And I think it's designed to give us confidence as we cry out to, to God for mercy for our sins, to understand what is the heart of our God. It gives us confidence to know the depths of his compassion and mercy that we might believe that all who truly call upon the Lord Jesus in faith will receive mercy and forgiveness for their sins. No matter how leprous we are with sin, no matter how unclean, no matter how shunned and ostracized, his mercy is more. I love how we get little glimpses of Jesus' heart for the outcast. You know, Jesus was sent first to the house of Israel, and yet we get little glimpses here as he shows compassion on a Samaritan, someone who was regarded as an enemy of Israel by most Israelites at the time. It's a foretaste of the expansion of the gospel. As we read in Psalm 67 this morning, God's heart has always been for the nations. Let the nations be glad. Secondly, I think this story reveals the power of our high priest. Jesus, our high priest, did what no other priest could do. Right? He wasn't just some umpire declaring clean and unclean. No, our high priest was able to take the uncleanness upon himself and actually make us clean. Jesus is the true and better high priest that we've been looking for. His touch brings purity. His touch makes us whole. Thirdly, we see here the knowledge of the king. I love how when the Samaritan falls on his face at the feet of Jesus and Jesus asks, we're not ten cleansed? The other nine didn't return and yet Jesus knew that they were cleansed. <laughs> Our king knows all things. 
And he wasn't, by the way, he wasn't asking the Samaritan where they were because he didn't know. He was asking the Samaritan where the other nine were to highlight the incredible fact that those who should have known better to come back and fall on their face before the Messiah didn't. And who was the one that did? The foreigner, the Samaritan. I see here the knowledge of the king. And fourthly, I see the worthiness to be worshipped. The man falls at Jesus' feet, praising God with a loud voice here. The, the Greek here is literally megaphone. It's the word, <laughs> the word Greek for, for loud is, is mega and voice is phone. That's where we get megaphone. The, the, the uh, leper is, cr- is praising God, not in a reserved way, but with a loud voice at the feet of Jesus. And he's thanking, he's praising God but thank, and thanking Jesus on his face. And, and look at how Jesus responds. He says, was no one found to return and give praise to God? Isn't that an, an incredible response? Here he is praising God at Jesus' feet, returning to Jesus to praise God in in, in a posture of worship. And Jesus doesn't scold the man for falling at his feet like the apostles do in the book of Acts when they performed a miracle and and the people come to them and are trying to worship them and, and they rip their clothes and say, Brothers, don't worship us. We are just men. But Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't redirect this man to give thanks to God, to not fall at his feet, but to thank God. He says, no, was no one found to return and give praise to God? He accepted the praise and the thanksgiving. And then he says, rise and and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Literally here, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. The Greek word, sozo, it means saved. I believe that the Samaritan leper was saved on a deeper level than the other nine who were merely cleansed of their leprosy. I believe the Samaritan entered the kingdom that day ahead of those who should have known better. Think about it, brothers and sisters. There is a way to thank God for his blessings and gifts that doesn't save you. We live in a nation that's getting ready to celebrate thanksgiving. There's even a way, I think, to benefit from God, even miraculously so, without being changed in your heart. Think of all the incredible, miraculous gifts that the Exodus generation received. They were delivered from slavery through ten miraculous plagues on their enemies. 
the Red Sea parted before them and they walked across and then their enemies were destroyed as God sent the waters crashing back down on them. They received daily food from heaven, bread from heaven and water from a rock. Yet the scriptures tell us that many of them were not truly saved. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5 says, Paul is warning the Corinthians who were living in sort of open sin. He says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I think this miracle of mass healing of the 10 lepers is such a unique healing story because Jesus sends out the lepers on, on a trajectory away from himself back towards their normal lives. This is such a unique experience. Normally when Jesus does a miracle, the people are standing there right in front of him and he performs the miracle. And of course they, they, they show gratitude and, and praise as they're standing right there. But in, in this one, it's like Jesus was a quarterback and he says, down set hike, go out for the pass. Right? He sends them that way towards their, their goal, towards the end zone. And then he lobs to them a, a miracle. Right? And, and as a, they're on their way to the priest who can declare them whole, who can declare them clean and can say, hey, guess what? You can rejoin your family. You can go back to your job. He sends them in that direction and then, and then he, he gives it to them. And as they're already released away from him, we find that nine out of ten of them were content with the blessing in hand to go on their merry way. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that the other nine were on their way to the priests praising and thanking God for what they had received from, I mean, it was a miracle. I'm sure they were thankful. And yet they neglected to see that an even greater blessing was available to them if they would only turn back. They missed it. It was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. They were content to return to the Mosaic priests, to the law, and never look back. I think the unique way of doing this healing really reveals that nine out of ten were content to go on their merry way away from Jesus, thankful for the gift, but apparently uninterested in the giver. Only one in ten, that's ten percent. Only 10% of those healed showed by turning back that they were interested not just in the gift, but in the giver. This, this Thanksgiving, Oldbridge Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, we ought to know from God's word that it is good to be thankful to God for all your blessings. It is good to be thankful to God for all your blessings, but know that there is nothing 
very uniquely Christian about merely being thankful. It is generally recognized, even by those who are far from God, that, that being a grateful person is an admirable quality. In fact, just this week I was on Facebook and I, I came across this meme, and I know you can't, aren't going to be able to read that, but you can at least see there's two different sides of, of this picture here. One side's green, and, and that's describing successful people. And then the other side is red, and it's, it's describing unsuccessful people here. And it's just comparing and contrasting. It says, successful people read every day, whereas unsuccessful people watch TV every day. Right? Successful people compliment, unsuccessful criticize. Successful embrace change, unsuccessful people fear change. Successful people forgive others. Unsuccessful people hold a grudge. Successful people talk about ideas. Unsuccessful people talk about people. Successful people continually learn, whereas unsuccessful people think they know it all. Successful people accept responsibility. Unsuccessful blame others. And then here near the bottom of the list, this is what jumped out to me. Successful people have a sense of gratitude Unsuccessful people have a sense of entitlement. There's nothing uniquely Christian about, about being thankful. And sometimes even unbelievers will put on their social media hashtag blessed. Right? They'll recognize in, in some way that what they have comes from God. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be grateful I'm not, I'm not criticizing people who are grateful. By all means, be grateful. But as the congregated church of God here at Oldbridge Baptist Church, what I'm saying is that I want to ask you this Thanksgiving, are you merely thankful for God's blessings in general? Or are you primarily thankful for Christ himself? Is your thanksgiving Christ-centered? thanksgiving do your blessings received from god send you off on your merry way if in other words if god gave you what you wanted most what you're praying for most right now if god gave that to you right now like he did the 10 lepers would you be content to go on your merry way having received what you need to lead your successful and happy life or do your blessings received from God plant you at the feet of a merciful Jesus? You know, I was thinking about it, and I, I really think that in time, this leper who returned to Jesus and had fallen at, at his feet, I, I think upon reflection of his situation in the days and weeks and months and years ahead, I think he would eventually come to the point where he could say, God, thank you for that leprosy. <laughs> thank you for those years of isolation. Because it was through that leprosy, through that uncleanness, that I came to know Jesus. My friends, the, the point of this story isn't just be more thankful. 
for the blessings in your life, that even though you should be. It's not try to be more like the one guy who took time to be thankful and less like the nine guys who were too self-centered to be thankful. That is a good lesson, but it's, it's deeper than that. The fact remains that the truly thankful person, the, the truly thankful person who has received the, the blessing of forgiveness from God values not just the gift, but supremely the giver. And the one who is at the foot of Jesus always has a reason to be thankful. And that's why Paul could adjure us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Really, Paul? Even in, even in 2020? <laughs> even in the midst of a pandemic, Paul? Even when my, my liberties are being limited? Even when things don't go the way that I want them to go? In my country or in my family or, or my job or, or what have you? Yes, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's why Paul could instruct us from prison to rejoice in the Lord always and to not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote that while he was chained up in prison. So church, trust in him. Commit your way to him. Wait for him. Delight in him. Cherish him. Be thankful for him. If you want to grow in your gratitude this Thanksgiving, then look past your circumstances. Look past even your blessings. And focus on giving thanks for Christ. Let's make it a Christ-centered Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. Lord, in that spirit of Thanksgiving, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for Lord, working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes, Lord. You have worked through both blessings, Lord, and mercies upon mercies that we have received. And you've also worked, Lord, through trials and through tribulations and struggles, all to bring us to the point where we see an all-surpassing value in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would gladden the hearts of your people today, Lord, and in this season. Lord, where it seems like there's much to grumble about, Lord, may we daily, Lord, hourly draw near to Christ, Lord, and have reason to give thanks in all circumstances this week. Strengthen us, Lord, for that. Lord, may Christ dwell in our hearts by faith. And Lord, I pray for those who are maybe within the sound of my voice this morning, Lord, who have never trusted in you. They have never looked past their own circumstances. They've never looked past their own blessings. Lord, to the giver. Lord, I pray that today they might know that Christ died for sins on the cross. 
he was buried and that he rose again so that those who place their faith in him can be saved. Lord, draw all men to yourself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.